with Matt and Hillary and I'm Matt. <laughs> I'm Hillary. And we're going to be talking this week about Everything for Everyone and Oral History of the New York Commune 2052 to 2072 by Emmy O'Brien and Iman Abdelhadi. Correct? That's correct. That's what we're talking about. Uh, out just uh, a few months ago from Common Notions Press. Uh, um. I feel like this is a really like kind of a low energy. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we got, we got that kind of low that, that holiday, uh, oh, the yeah. holiday cheer is just overwhelming me. And I'm, uh, you know, we'll, per- we'll, <laughs> I don't know. We'll perk up. as we we'll, we'll perk up. You know what I've noticed, Matt? Yes. Uh, we're no, on. Zoom. I don't. We're on Zoom so we can see each other. I've noticed you're wearing a blue shirt over a yellow shirt, and I am wearing a yellow shirt over a blue shirt. Very good. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> Indeed. Wow. We're off to a rock rollicking good start. Um, despite our low energy, which will no- undoubtedly perk up, we love this book. Yes. And we recommend everybody read go out and buy it and read it and yes. get your students to read it, get your friends. I say get your friends, get your family to read it. Uh talk about it. We're going to talk as much as we can about I mean, there's so much in this book to think oh, about yeah. and talk oh about. Yeah. It's an incredibly rich <laughs> uh book. But it's also and it's also written in a way that is extremely I mean, unique and interesting and uh accessible too. So it's not um I don't know. It's it's not deceptively complex. I don't know why that's coming to mind as a as a phrase, but it is. Um, I don't know. What, how would you describe it, Hillary? Yeah. So I think. I mean, uh, I one of the qualities that I really like about this book, and I will say, I'm a big fan of Emmy O'Brien's work. Um, I've taught a couple of essays by her a couple of times. Um, uh she's has a great piece uh, in endnotes and um uh a really great piece on Fourier and uh family abolition that was in Pinko magazine um and I I, I would sort of characterize her work this way to to this thing that I would say about this book which is that like it has a quality of being quite straightforward like um yeah uh, in a way that I really appreciate, like, uh, it is it's really actually, access- think, it's really accessible. It's, it's, ex- it's really accessible in this kind of like, um, I think it's both like a complex book sort of politically and intellectually, and also it's complex at the level, um, of its imagining of the world that it is detailing, um, uh, and in the like, really like, um, I think very uh, nuanced um, account that it gives largely by implication of how it is that things change from where we are now. 
Um, but at the same time, it has this very just like bracing, like um, uh, uh, kind of, I don't know, like straightforward, plain spoken quality to it. Um, which is not to say in, you know, that's not like a, um, what do you, what is the phrase? Like a backhanded compliment or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's really nicely written, but I, I, I think that it, it's just very direct. And I really, I really like that about it. It's very direct, despite the fact that this is obviously written by two people, it's written by two people who are academics, um, and who are obviously both, uh, brilliant and intensely well-read and like with like a ton of knowledge, you know, but like all of that is like very, is very light in here. Um, you know, you don't feel like this is a book that is, um, uh, uh, you, you, I think you, you don't feel like this is a book that wears that kind of knowledge as a burden. Instead, it's like, um, it's just like, it's, it's really gripping. Um, yeah. The, the, uh, I think accessibly, accessibly complex is what I would maybe call it because, um, once you, when you're reading it and if you start sort of contemplating thinking about it more and talking about it more, I think, um, you realize how kind of full the vision is. I mean, in a certain way, I would compare it on that, on these counts to like a Kim Stanley Robinson book, because he, his writing style is very straightforward and fluid. Yeah. It's not flowery. It's not, um, obtuse or, uh, uh, it doesn't intentionally obscure anything, um, with this, but at the same time, his vision there, the vision of Robinson versus the vision of O'Brien and Abdel Hadi for the future seem, um, not exactly complementary, but very radically different, right. Um, in like really, really key, uh, interesting ways. Not that this is going to be a comparison between KSR and and this book, but um, but just as a kind of baseline for for thinking about or or one one way to uh, kick it off and and uh, with the resonances. One of the reasons why it's so accessibly written and easy to read and yet still complex is that it's written as a series of interviews yeah. conducted between mm -hmm. the years twenty sixty seven and twenty seventy two, which I thought was also just a fascinating conceit of the novel um, to think about as, uh, rather than a novel, it's a series of interviews, right. Or as a novel, it is a series of interviews. I don't know how you would describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, you know, the idea is, or the, the kind of conceit of how it holds together as a book is that these two people, Emmy O'Brien and Iman Abdelhadi are doing, um, an oral history of, the New York Commune, um, and they are doing. They are both at the point that they're doing these interviews late in their own lives, and neither one of them was um, actively involved at the in the various sort of formative moments of the New York Commune. Um, but they're here in their guise as kind of like both uh, sort of historians and elders. Um, doing an oral history project. And the interviews that we get in this book, the the oral histories we get in this book are um, uh, just a selection from a much larger set of interviews we learn. Um, and we learn that that whole, all of those interviews together constitute the oral history. And these are just the ones that they have pulled out to put in a, spe a special print edition, even though that's a completely sort of... Um, retro retro form but they're kind of pleased with the aesthetics of it um and the this is i think a really um you know 
it's a great, it's a really interesting kind of like uh, way to play with a bunch of science fictional stuff, you know, one with questions about perspective. Um, and I would say like a really big theme of this book that is not just theme, but is also like, I think conceptually very important to thinking about um, how we imagine um, actually transforming the world for the better. I think a really important theme of the book is how many overlapping histories there are um, and all of the overlaps between like personal story, um, larger scale stories, uh, you know, neighborhood stories, local stories, um, um, and larger sort of, um, you know, uh, global stories and, you know, I, national stories, even though clearly the nation does not exist. Uh, I think nations don't exist at all in the moment of the book. Um, so, you know, it, the oral histories both like give you these like, you know, little glimpses of the world and a little glimpse of a person living in the world. And they give you little glimpses of the interviewers too. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about it is that the, the two interviewers have different personalities in their, in their interviews. Um, and, uh, and you, the reader are kind of trying to put together the bigger picture, the bigger picture things. And part of what you're sort of refused is just an easy, seamless story of how that this happens. Instead, you have to kind of like ride on how change happens is actually like incredibly, incredibly various. Um, and sort of going along with that is another like major thematic that is also, I think, conceptual here um, is like how much people forget about things that have happened, um, how much people don't want to talk about certain aspects of the past, and also the ongoingness of the past, particularly as trauma, um, also as loss, as grief, um, as the need to make restitution and repair, all of those kinds of things. So all of that is like, um, you know, that is like, there's just super complicated stuff here and thinking about like what it means to change you know, what it means to like experience change, to know when change is happening. Um, but we get it through these like what are, you know, um, almost, you know, they have an almost like snapshot like quality, these kinds of scenes where you're just like hearing a person talk and, you know, you're hearing them like remember either bits and pieces of stuff or like larger kind of coherent narratives about what happened when. Um, and also the interviewees are like from all kinds of different um, backgrounds and are a wide range of ages too. So they're interviews with people who are quite young and then they're interviews with people who like lived through much more of it. And that's like a really lovely questions about age are like, I think also really part of the part of the book. So there's a lot to pick up on there. The, the, polyphonic or multivocal nature of the book really highlights because, okay, so part of the, okay, the conceit of the book, it's taking place after basically a global revolution or insurrection, right? And the New York commune is merely one of a multitude of communes all over the world and commune, and they have a kind of like, um, uh, uh, a definitional moment in the introduction where they describe what they mean by commune, right? At a certain point. So like that commune is uh, uh, 
uh, on page 15, it says the general animating political vision that had come to dominate the insurrection, one of human flourishing in total opposition to state and to capital. Um, there are many definitions that link together multiple qualities of this new era of revolutionary society, right? So we're in a post-capital, post-nation state, post-wage labor, um, almost like post-gender. Gender mm -hmm. takes a really, really, really central position here, um, revolutionary moment. And part of what the, you know, the, the interlocutors, the interviewees, are engaged in continuing the mission of the revolution, essentially. Like capital has been defeated. There are still pockets of fascists around that the communists, that like global communists, however so defined, are still kind of fighting. Like there's an allusion to Australia. Some fucked up stuff is still going on in Australia that we're, we're not really aware of or we're not really privy to uh, directly and that the, the interviewees are kind of confused about. Um, but key to remember is that the revolution continues. So even after the fall of capital, even after the fall of the nation state, even after um, a radical redefinition of gender, these, uh, these structures are still residual and they still have to be fought even with new generations who have grown up or been born and grown up in a post-capital moment, right? In a, po in a moment where wage labor is completely alien, in a moment where the family has been abolished as we know it, and people don't even can't even wrap their minds around the fact that there used to be two people in charge of a, one or many kids, um, and, and in these isolated little apartment units because everyone's living in creches or communes or you know just uh, like community and togetherness and family take take all these new revolutionary forms, um, and we get and the polyvocal poly multivocal polyphonic nature of that means of, of the interviewees means that we get different um ideas and pictures and moments of both the past and the future um in from very different perspectives um from you know broken homes and families to like cults to um refugee families uh, all of these different ways in which that sort of describe what to us is the present um, in ways from a perspective, from a revolutionary uh, future perspective that um, throws into relief how fucked up our kind of present is and what, um, what a revolutionary situation uh, could look like and mean for people. And just one more yeah. thing, the centrality of trauma in their articulations of the past, of their past um, mm -hmm. lives, and also in the revolutionary future as trauma as a thing to be talking about, thinking about, overcoming constantly at every level, but from psychological to the body, I found so fascinating because from the position of this revolutionary future, looking back on what to us is our present everyday lives, the traumas just compound. They are, it's like a stack of traumas that we are currently living in that the, that, that revolutionary present or future has transcended, but is still in the process of working through and dealing with both on the sort of personal psychological level, but also on the kind of global political and, um, a uh, 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 cultural kind of level, right? Like that, that this is something that this is a project for 
what society, what human being would be is to take care of ourselves in ways that are prohibited from us under under current conditions of capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that I think really central to, I mean, central to the vision of the book is this kind of, um, you know, is an abolitionist politics that says like, um, and abolition isn't only getting rid of the state, getting rid of um, the commodity form, getting rid of uh, money. Um, it's also thinking, and and what do we do to take care of ourselves? Because it's we who will take care of ourselves. So, I mean, I deeply, I mean, this is like a great book about, I mean, for thinking about care um, and that, you know, and that uh, that there are forms and practices of care that exist like in our present, um, but that are not able to manifest themselves fully. Um, and that, you know, the the social order that we see, the commune that we see, and the glimpses that we have, because, you know, we're, we're primarily like, the interviews are taking place in New York, and most of the interviewees are people who are involved with the New York commune in in more or less direct ways, including in the in the early stages of it. <clears throat> um, but some of the interviewees are are not um, are not from New York. And through their stories and through other stories, we get glimpses of how like, OK, we're looking we're looking at a world in which people are living in a lot of different ways, but certain kinds of things are common to everybody, um, you know, and one of them is the, you know, what the title of the book captures, just, you know, the central thing is everything for everyone, um, which also means, you know, the fulfillment of everyone's needs. Um, and part of how this book, I think, thinks about the fulfillment of need um, is that, like, you know, we living as we do now hardly even know what our needs are. Most of our needs, we can't even talk or think about um because the ones that are supposedly basic to us you know we have to struggle for and the ones that are supposedly not basic you know <laughs> you know we we don't uh are, are hardly even recognized as mattering so we get this kind of like we get a very strong sense that like through um the entire that one i mean i think as you were gesturing to like this is a global social order um that is is extremely alive in that things are changing all the time and they're changing all the time because everybody is working together to meet the needs that people actually have um to recognize those the needs and meet the needs that people have and that has to take place both through a lot of um uh cooperative work of all all kinds and through a great deal of conversation um which this book also makes very clear is also work um, right. And and also through like a really like broad understanding of like practices of care, including therapy, and that all that all of that is like the the sort of uh, the acknowledgement of need and that needs are something that are not static, you know, that you can't put in a list or a hierarchy, but have to be responded to all the time. Seems like it's really kind of at the heart of the way that we see things working and as part of what marks out the like um yeah how this just like gives us a glimpse of something that like we you know is is so radically different 
from us, right? right? Imagining just like, I mean, not only the like, imagine that you live in a place and you don't have to pay rent and imagine that like when you're hungry, there's a place that you can go to eat. Um, and imagine that like you don't just do one job, but maybe like one of in one of the communes, they work three, three hour shifts a week and three, two hour shifts a week doing something else, you know, um, all, all of all of those things like the the sort of the sense of like uh, uh, this kind of richness of communal life in which like you're constantly working on and talking with other people, you know? Um, yeah. Go ahead. And people from all over the world, like both in your commune, in your, in your like local assembly, but also that there is a reco a recuperation of the internet, um, in radically new ways that actually allows for a facilitation of coordination of production, uh, and distribution on a global level that is actually meeting people's needs and not the needs of the market, right? That the, that the needs of the market have been sort of defeated or, or eliminated, destroyed in favor of, you know, human need and also like ecological re restoration. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the center of this, I mean, like, it's hard to say actually at the center of this because there's so many it's it it the book is so brilliant about showing and exploring connections between um modes of kind of oppression and repression that you would not assume are are linked but that when you pull on one strand uh a whole the whole kind of tapestry starts to unwind so the the linkage between gender and wage labor um, the, the linkage between sort of childhood trauma and child abuse, uh, and how that compounds to, to attitudes about, you know, um, uh, just competition and war and, and violence, uh, and then how that redounds back to the kind of wage labor situation and stuff. All of these things, um, are so deeply entwined and interrelated in this book. The book reveals those intertwinings that it's difficult to say what's central. And each of the characters sort of has a different theory about what is center, central to that, right? The yeah. first interview uh, with Miss Kelly, who's a who's a skin worker, right? At one point, I think the, inter the interviewer, which is O'Brien, calls her, says sex worker, but she says, I mean, skin worker, right? Or skin work. And that to me was such a rich and, and important uh neologism or you know twist of the language because what what was being provided by miss kelly is not merely sex but whatever people need in terms of what their physical needs are like touching or massage or just hugging or sex making sure you're having the kind of sex that you want to have when you feel that you need it or whatever that this is like also central to the human experience and uh and 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 that is uh you know um part of human need and i think yeah that was yeah that was really one of the early things in the book that kind of um woke me up yeah yeah i mean i think it's um uh one thing that i wanted to say is that i i, I one of the things that i love about the sort of the the vision in this book is um you know, it, it really, there's this, um, uh, part of why you can't sort of tell, tell the story of the book. Um, you know, right. you were just saying like, 
you know, we want to say, oh, something that's central here. And there are, I mean, I think we could like, you know, we could list a whole bunch of things that feel like really important, but it feels like there's something wrong with saying like, oh, this is really central to how things go. Other other than, you know, what's captured by the idea of the commune. Um, I, I mean, and part of why it's hard to say what's central is, is because like, you know, we're looking at a de-hierarchized world um, in such a thoroughgoing way that like, you know, there isn't a kind of like, there isn't an, a need to like make a list of kind of priorities or whatever. Um, and one of the things, one of the things I think is very like, I find quite charming about the, about, <laughs> about the book. And I think this is because, you know, like I, you know, I also like am a kind of academic and therefore sometimes when I'm thinking about like the science fiction that I want to write, I find myself thinking like, oh, but I, how would I explain this sort of thing that I care about a lot, this like theoretical thing that I want to say, you know, um, so they write, they have a great introduction to the to the book, which makes perfect, it makes perfect sense in the context. And it's very like, um, you know, there's a kind of joking quality to it because like, thank God, one of the things that does not exist anymore is academia right. um, because learning is just everywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they do some explaining of like, well, you know, we're old. And so we feel like we need to say these things. Um, and we have to say them in this particular way. Like, sorry, we were trained in an older generation. We were academics. So yeah. this is just the way we write. And you know, struggle through it, but understand that it's like an artifact of a yeah, past that exactly. no longer, that thankfully no longer exists. Exactly. And they give us, they give us these, they give us the, you know, the sort of key central terms like abolition, like commune, communization. Um, and, you know, they explain those things in, you know, like elegantly and concise, concisely. But then the great part is then you see those things in in action, you know, and that's right. that first that first um, uh, oral history with Miss Kelly um, when they, uh, you know, at great, um, you know, personal risk and through a great deal of loss, like basically like liberate this central food market and immediately begin redistribution. Um, Part of what is, you know, I mean, that whole, I agree that it, it's such a like wonderful beginning to the book. And, you know, like, I think a bunch of these stories can, I mean, these, a bunch of the chapters can sort of stand on their own as stories. And I think the Miss Kelly one absolutely can stand on its own. But part of what you see there is like, oh, this is what it means that like, um, what the revolution is or what the commune is, is not like a series of steps. Um, it is like taking the moment of um, crisis and insurrection and immediately handing out food and, you know, realizing like, what are you going to have to do to like, keep, keep doing that. Right. And from, and from there, every, the things things happen because like right away you are already acting as if you were in the commune. Right. I mean, yeah. so that is the commune is not a form yet to come. And yet it is also something that is constantly being built. And that right. I think is so, you know, like you can read, I mean, you know, like whatever, there's a lot of like great like stuff people have written about communization, but getting to sort of, um, uh, 
that you know here you get to sort of like think oh this is what that might look like in action you know like this is what it might look like this is the experience of and so you know you know, we begin with the idea that maybe this is the beginning of the New York Commune, but then also we learn, well, actually, you know, um, this might not have been the beginning. There's some contest about whether even that is the first moments of the New York Commune. And then also we learn that already in both in China and in the Andes, communes have already formed. And actually the United States was, you know, it things things happen in North America kind of later. Yeah. Um, and we learn, you know, the bits and pieces about like the unevenness of history, but throughout, like, we're always seeing people who are, um, uh, you know, bring it, bringing the way of life into being by doing it, by living it. And, and that is, can't, is never an individual act, even though it's individuals who are being interviewed. Um, Yeah. Which speaks also again, yeah, going back to what we started with is the difficulty of of using the word central, right? Because the the rep, the global insurrection revolution is taking place unevenly at different times, at different speeds all over the world. The U.S. is late to the game, in fact. Um, individuals are doing it, but uh, it's almost impossible. Like basically, the one of the programs of the book. I mean, the form of the, the novel takes is to expose the kind of impossibility of narrating or of narrativizing yeah. as a series of events that what what the revolution ought to look like. And the the kind of even in our what we consider to be or what we think of as writing history itself is part of that kind of almost like oppressed, oppressed, uh, 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 ideological capture of things, one thing happens and then another thing happens and this guy did that thing. And then that woman did this thing. And that's how it all happened because they have a kind of, you know, schematic history also in that introduction where they're introducing uh, the terms where we, okay. So the U S kind of started to fail in the thirties, then to stimulate economic growth, we did a full scale invasion of Iran uh, and we nuked Tehran and, you know, all these, so all these things start and like the small business owners partner with the mega corporations to produce a new fascism in the, in the Rocky mountains in the Midwest and the great plains. And then there are these insurrectionary camps on the coasts and the major cities and da, 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 da. But, you know, and that's kind of like, yeah, that's that academic kind of history that you would expect to be written. But then you go into the interviews with the communes and it gets so much more messy and yeah. um uh and then like sort of subjective heroic action uh takes a complete backseat to kind of personal experience and just the necessity of well that we had to do it this way because we were in this crisis or whatever so the commune itself as an idea kind of emerges almost spontaneously or organically as a response to crisis so what would it you know, there, you have an ongoing crisis and finally the right salute or the kind of solution to that in response is the commune because the crisis is not everybody has everything. Right. Uh, right, right and so exactly. the commune is the solution to giving everybody everything um, in a way that's, yeah, de-hierarchicalized and not uh, dependent upon 
wage labor and commodities, commodity production, right? Yeah, I mean, like the the crisis, the crisis you realize is our entire way of life. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And then, yeah, and 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 I think also, like, if we just you know just thinking about Miss um, Kelly's narrative at the beginning, like we also see there how um, we're not talking about revolution as like um, like radical break although the revolution is the revolution is radical particularly particularly in that um you know it's uncontrollable it's it's obvious from you know that like um particularly in the scenes of fighting like what direction things were going to go was not clear at the moment or whatever um but you know one of the reasons that miss kelly and um the other uh, trans women sex workers who she is uh, is with like part of what lets them do what they can do is that they one have an ex one they you know like have you know a strong and immediate experience of um the oppression of the cops and the state and being poor um and two they also have experiences of building um little communities of care to take you know and she, she you know she reflects on her experiences prior to the commune of forms of care and it's you know in it it does seem to be that part of what we get in that in that sequence is like without i agree with you this is so much not i mean in that in that first narr uh, narrative like miss kelly also talks about like you know, do you want to think that you're a hero? Like she talks about these questions about individual agency and she links them to her own, you know, to her own psyche and the way that she understands herself. Um, but I think without heroizing anyone, you know, what we see are um, uh, how people with experiences of oppression and of responding to and living through that oppression of surviving um, you know, and of surviving through communal care against all odds, like those become the people who to whom the commune is obvious, you know, it's like a it's like a, a making sustainable of the thing, a making thriving of the thing that was only surviving before, you know, but that well, you had a glimpse of, right? That and you because had surviving of. surviving takes, you know, in retrospect, or yeah, you had a glimpse of surviving takes the form of meeting needs, right? Yes. Surviving, you're surviving the crisis. So what do you need to survive the crisis today? And then that begins to mm. sort of snowball and take on, uh, you know, larger, larger, more like bigger scale forms, right? So that because the crisis is that needs are not being met and what happens when needs aren't met is people stop surviving. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so survivability, uh, the need to survive. And like, and that's addressed too at the beginning in the introduction where um just the emphasis is one of the emphases is put on money, you know. Uh and uh O'Brien and Abdel Hadi are, are writing, as elders, we remember a time when you had to constantly keep track of how much money you had in the bank. This amount determined whether, as one of our narratives put it, you could afford to get sick, whether you could keep your housing and sometimes even whether you could afford food, right? Um, and so money is also part of the crisis. Just the existence of money itself is part of the crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that kind of the sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, the, that opening, right. We, we get something that is like the riot that takes place like, um, at the market. Right. Um, and the first, you know, the sort of first thing that they do, whether we take this to be like the actual first act of the commune or not, I think in the end, like really doesn't matter. Right. Um, but the first thing that they do is re is redistribution, you know, and then from redistribution, it is just actually quite obvious that like um, production has to be transformed right. as as well. I mean, those things, you know, follow on and are caught up with each other. Did I have I been calling her Miss Kitty? Miss Kelly. I okay, think you said, you've said Miss Kelly. Yeah. OK, good. Because then I looked at her name and I was like, did I say Miss Kitty? But Miss Kelly, I mean, uh, she also has the epigram of the whole book, which yeah. is this quote. Um, O'Brien asked her, what does the commune mean to you? It means we take care of each other. It means everything for everyone. It means we communized the shit out of this place. It means we took something that was property and made it life. And that to me is so awesome, right? Like property is death. <laughs> like yeah. this myth, yeah, yeah. that is the thing that has like been bugging me a lot lately is just that this myth that you can own something uh, is so fucking furious to me <laughs> <laughs> as rents go up and as food prices go up and as healthcare is a commodity and all of this stuff, uh, that is all just fucking death. And they're just yeah. myths of death. And it's preventing people from goddamn living. And as I see more and more homeless people around my tiny little city of Maine, it's so fucking infuriating to me that people mm. believe that they own these things and they can charge money for them. And they, you for, you're forced to spend so much of your goddamn life at these stupid fucking jobs that don't actually do anything or help anybody. Yeah. Um, and that's a cool thing about uh, another part of the vision of this book is that obviously labor is not eradicated. There's another great quote from Miss Miss Kelly O'Brien. Uh, Miss Kelly's describing what her role was in the commune. O'Brien says, "It must have been a lot of work." Kelly, I don't know about that. I guess in a way, but I have rested more in the last 15 years than I ever did in my decades before, because when we're free to do the work that's necessary, it doesn't feel like work, and it's also a lot less work than we have to do under wage labor under yeah. capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, little uh, shout out to William Morris. News from nowhere is right. An epic of rest. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean the the sort of uh, there's so many. By the way, they're just like there's so many things that I think like little bits and pieces throughout here that I don't. I mean, I obviously I, I don't know whether both of the authors are big science fiction readers, but I do feel like at least part of the consciousness that produced this book, like really loves science fiction and yeah. like, you know, just the kind of, uh, you know, just these little moments like woven, woven into it where I think, you know, we see like a lot of respect for the kind of, um, uh, yeah, the, you know, the hope that like is built into science fiction kind of, you know, at least some science fiction, uh, gen generically, and the and the kind of pleasure, the pleasure of it too. Um, yeah, I mean, property. I you know, like, yeah, uh, yeah. Fuck property. 
Um, Fuck bribery, man. Um, one thing I was going to say that I think is really like I would I would like to talk about the. Um, well, I don't know. I'm I'm happy to talk about any parts of it, and I guess if we're like less specific, it's better if people are going to yeah. read it, and that way we're not. You, that's why it. I mean I buy the book and buy two copies and give it to a friend or give it to your mom or dad or something who might be a fascist because uh and make them read it and then talk about it at christmas is what i would say yeah there's 12 interviews uh yeah make them read it and then make them talk about it and say like why couldn't this be the way <laughs> i i think like um one thing that i really like and respect a lot about this book is um it just has i i think the the book itself has so much respect for the idea that people will live in different ways and value different kinds of things and want to experience the world in different ways. And that that does not mean that people cannot work together, live together, care for each other and support each other. You know, that there's a real kind of sense in a lot of the narratives of like, I mean, particularly from the younger people, like a lot of the younger people talk about having lived on their own or in like groups of people who are just their same, like age, age based right. groups. Um, you know, there's a strong understanding that that like might be necessary or important for people. Um, I think there's a real respect for, um, you know, like the power, I mean, the, one of the early ones is one of the people who becomes just like a really amazing, um, coordinator of stuff, um, who is like organizes dance parties. And there's yes. just this like real, there's this very, I, I mean, I, to my mind, like this very like loving respect for how subcultural affiliations, um, are not only like, I don't know. Uh, they're not incidental to like, quote unquote, mainstream culture. That's exactly. part of like, that's yeah. part of like myth of centrality and narrative that this book is like operating against. Yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Cause like in that, in that narrative, like, you know, that narrator like tells us about like how much like the dance kids who are also like all wired up and like, like to do things virtually, like become like really, you know, become really key to doing some large scale coordinating of stuff because they already know how to do it. Right. And because they have this kind of vision. Um, and they put on dance parties that when you go to the dance party, you're there to have a great time, dance, party, everybody needs to be taken care of because if anybody is hurt there or anything, any bad stuff goes down, it ruins the party. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very like, I mean, I think that that, I think there's a real like, um, uh, you know, and, and that goes along with the way in which I think that the, the novel as a whole is very, I think, uh, careful to give us like a really complex picture of the place of technology in human life um that i think is like it's a i i think it's a nuanced account you know um and it definitely is refusing it does not want to we get a like moment sort of i think toward the end where somebody i think it's when um o'brien is talking with the person who's the historian um mm. and they both talk about like refusing nostalgia yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a, like, without this being in any way, this is like the opposite of like a techno determinist, you know, version of the future. But at the same time, like it, it takes technology seriously. 
Um, it understands technology is already woven into our lives. Um, and I think it shows it, you know, like as, um, you know, I think there are parts of the there are parts of the sort of picture of the te- of like the place of technology in this world that I ha- I feel ambivalent about. Like I don't know what I think about like, you know, building a space elevator. I mean, you know, like there's kind of rationalities to it, and I kind of think like, I don't know, you know, like a nuclear bomb was dropped on Mississippi. Like, is this right. you know? Uh, but like, I was, I respect the, I respect that what we have there is like this sense of like, not closing off the kinds of possibilities that kinds of ways that people might, you know, want to kind of build thriving human life. And, you know, we get it all as emerging out of like intense conversations that people have, um, and their attempts to work together to do things and also like really difficult choices that are made. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, the fact that well, it's also, I mean, I don't know. Speaking to that with the the notion of technology, like there are these like, okay, so there's new technologies that are, you know, developed both in the future leading up to the insurrection and then and then after the insurrection within the commune. So the space elevator is a, you know, global uh, endeavor. Um, undertaken by many communes. And it's mostly because mining has been off-worlded to the asteroid so that, and then there's also these like neural implants that uh, primarily start in the military, military military technology. And then these veterans coming back, they tap into the dance scene. And so there, and there, but there's also a kind of trauma associated with these implants, but they also enable a new kind of networking and, and coordination. So there's kind of like futuristic technology, but I think that a uh, key is like the attitude toward technology in general. And um, uh, underscoring the idea that revolution uh, and the commune are sort of imminent, even in our own right, in our present. So that the things that we see narrated in the book, uh, there are, you know, outgrowths or analogs to our own current living and that there's a little bit of like the beaches under the sidewalk like we just need to kind of excavate these kinds of already like kind of latent structures and possibilities in order to release them and like you know free us basically yeah Um, yeah yeah i mean it's also like let me just add this like there's also another like two at like what's interesting about the nostalgia thing at the very end of the book is that it actually mirrors a, a mention of nostalgia at the beginning, like at the end of Miss Kelly's interview. Um, O'Brien, uh, Miss Kelly's talking about, uh, you know, I, uh, I want people to remember my face. I guess I'm still trying to make up, take up space after all of this because Miss Kelly, you know, wanted to take up space and like be noticed. O'Brien, you enjoy the nostalgia and you enjoy imagining yourself in that heroic identity. Yeah, I guess I do. The battles were so glamorous. Like they turned out, they turned us all into heroes in one way or another. And I had always kind of thought of myself as a queen. Like I maintained an inner sense of my beauty, even when things were hard. I imagine you must get this a lot doing oral histories. I've gotten to know how I tick over the years and I see what I get out of it. I like nostalgia. You're right. So, and then yeah, at yeah. the end, the last guy, Sanchez, who is like taking care of these al- algal serval- server farms, which is really cool, says, um, 
we can't ever let the commodity form or the state or any of it ever come back. We have to remember what generalized what generalized exchange does to people. His theory about change is that you know, wage labor and exchange are like the core cancer of human suffering, basically. Generations that haven't ever seen that harm directly have to somehow remember and understand it. So his is, uh, oh, we, but there is another way that I think we should be done with nostalgia to totally refuse nostalgia altogether, right? Um, and just turn to the future and look outwards and stop, you know, rem- uh, romanticizing the past. So even within this kind of like, within this book, it's bookended by two completely different yeah. attitudes about nostalgia. Um, so it, I, what, I love that. And it kind of cause holds the ambiguity of the past uh, uh, in a kind of uh, suspension. Right. Um, and it also shows that like the future, even a utopian, like quasi utopian, anti anti utopian commune future, it won't be full of people with groupthink who all have the same ideas and wear you know, the same uniforms or something like that. It's not like a 1984 Brave New World future or whatever like that. It's it's a future with um, that is built on conversation, that's built on contradiction, um, and that thrives out of that contradiction, right? Yeah, it's yeah. It's constantly reinventing yeah. itself out of those contradictions. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, that comes out so much. The interview with Sanchez brings a lot of that out because I, they, I think, don't, I think they identify as agender, but- um, Oh, right, that's right. Uh, they, you know, they have their own, they're, they're talking about the sort of, um, you know, a move to kind of codify the ways in which some things are done. And, and it seems obvious that, you know, for, for Sanchez, there's the kind of concern that the codification is like close to producing something that's like canon or like law i mean it doesn't seem to be the same as law but 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 clearly that's that's a kind of like worry that they have um and at the same time you know they you know it makes it makes sense that this is something that is being done that's being experimented with so we both have this sort of you know i mean i think something something i like about the book a lot is like one um everybody everybody acknowledges everybody who knows that there is a difference acknowledges that their lives are better. Um, and yet that doesn't mean that people's individual lives aren't hard. Um, even, you know, even we get one of the young interviewees, um, who talks about their family, uh, uh, and experience and experiences abuse, like, because, um, one of their parents, uh, one of their parents is killed in the fighting in around Colorado Springs and uh, another one of their parents can't handle the grief, you know, and we get like an account of like from, from, you know, the child's perspective, like what did, what did the process look like in the, in the commune to, to sort of deal with this. Um, And, you know, so we, so like one, I, I just lost the, I was thinking about that and lost the, the uh, point that I was going to make, but like one, you know, we get that like, um, you know, human life is still going to be full of um, struggle and suffering, um, but the struggle and suffering are different when we can experience those things um, in a world in which we're all caring for each other. 
um, in which there is an assumption about needs being fulfilled, um, and in which people are are honest about, you know, everybody needing um, support from other people, including therapeutic support. Um, uh, and then we also get the sort of, you know, we get the sense also there are there are big debates that are still in process and are still hap- happening. You know, when we get the um, the guy who is doing the ecological restoration work, I mean, he talks about uh, um, doing bio doing bioengineering to produce species to fill niches where, um, you know, including like soil bacteria. Um, where those niches are empty and are needed aren't are needed, right? Um, and that obviously is a, I mean, it, it's clear, you know, he has his own position in relation to that, but that's obviously still a, a subject of debate. Um, when we hear from the uh the guy who is in the Iran war and was uh uh comes from the Wind River reservation. Uh, you know, he talks about like, you know, it's clear that there are still ongoing arguments about what the relationship is between land back and communization and, um, you know, that the work that it took to like bring those conceptions of relation of relationality together is obviously something that's still present, you know, so the, the kind of like, uh, those points of ambiguity or complexity like show up um actually it reminds me both of those things remind me a little bit of um marge piercy's woman at the edge of time which i think mm-hmm. where i think people often read the utopian world there as much more uniform than it actually is and my reading mm-hmm. of that utopian world is that actually we see it as a place where there's a lot of argument happening mm-hmm. Um, a unres- unresolved argument, you know, um, and 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 both like um, interpersonal conflicts and larger and larger kinds of conflicts like still take place. It's just that they have ways in which people work together to sort of resolve those things. And some of I think some of that is here, too, in which like, you know, utopia is not the fi- is not something finished. It's something ongoing it's something in motion um but it is something that people are are committed to too i mean you know are committed to um the the project of are committed to like um the possibility of and that i feel like we hear from people just like across the interviews you know this sense of like commitment and engagement which is just like another thing that like when you think about it like is so hard to imagine I mean, that sounds dumb, but like, it's like really hard to imagine what living in a way in which we were really committed, not just to each other, um, but to like our, to our social world as a whole, you know, in which we felt like what we did, our everyday lives were part of building and making that, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the, you know, once you, once they eliminate wage labor in that eight hour workday and they switch to a, th- a three hour and a two hour or a tens and twenties, right. The, this kind of like, okay, you're, you know, you're going to be in charge of, you're going to have to do some like stuff that you don't really want to do, like wash the dishes or tend to garden or whatever. Hopefully like, I mean, you can pick something that you do want to do, but you're only going to have to do it for a little bit of time. The rest of the time you will be engaged in building community and building society in like 
active conversation and uh, 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 collaboration with others to build the society that you want to have. And at the end of the book, again, at the end of the book, the last guy, the last uh, individual that uh, they talked to, uh, Sanchez says, um, uh, uses a refrain that we see in, in Stan's work a lot, which is we finally get to find out who we are. Yeah. Right. We finally get to find out what human society is. And that's the project that we're building. Right. Um, and that's what, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking, uh, oh, and one, I do, do you think the space elevator at Keto is a, is a KSR reference? I mean, it That's where the space be. elevator is in 2312. I can't yeah. remember if I can't remember if I've read another space elevator that's located in that same place. I feel like our most ideas about space elevators building out of keto just because it's at the equator or something. I don't know. I or don't maybe know. that's just a specifically KSR thing. I don't know. I actually I actually don't know. Could um, I, guess, I guess we could learn that by Googling. We could Google. Uh, There's what are some other cool things that you like about like little details that you like about the book? Now that we're talking about space, one of the cool things that I like is how all the rich people try to get out, get off the planet and they're, and it took, and it's like taking thousands of people to keep them alive. And once the revolution happens, they just let them fucking die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sort of the thematic of the, like the hard, the hard choices, although honestly that one is so satisfying. Um, uh, I love, I mean, one, one just like, you know, little standalone chapter that I love is the one about Palestine, which I just think is like, I think it's the only one we have that it, it takes place entirely outside of the United States. Um, and, uh, it's just so, it's so beautiful, you know, it's so sort of, um, specific, I mean, like, you know, it's so specific in the vision of what could happen and just like, uh, I don't know. I, it's, I find it incredible, incredibly moving and, Incre you know, like the, the sort of like, uh, the, the vision of like, you know, these Palestinian kids coming from New York, but they've kept Palestine, you know, they've refused to forget Palestine. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just yeah, think it's the, I, it's it's so it's so it's so nicely written. It really is a lovely and the way that whole thing unfolds, where they're basically just surrounding these the settlements and um, waiting them out essentially because they all they all have these private militias, and it's so easily to reading that it's just so easily map mapping onto gated communities here in the oh, states, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and and the you know the little micro fascisms that are all around this fucking country um yeah yes exactly um i love the, of course i love the um the gestation coordinator right. chapter um which i just think like this is another thing that i like about the book like it it wears that um technology extremely lightly so it's you know like there are lots of different ways that um, gestation can take place, but anybody who wants to gestate um, can gestate. Um, uh, and uh, you can, if you want, you know, get full support while living just like in the place where you live all the time. But also if you want to just like chill out um, and, you know, have this be a kind of time out of time, there's a whole place that you can go and like, 
participate in other kinds of activities and be fully cared for and, you know, just kind of, you know, celebrate the experience, what is, what is recognized to be like an extraordinary human experience. That's, and, that's awesome. And, and that it's, um, yeah, it's something you can choose to do, uh, because you're actually, you're actually, because it's this extraordinary human experience because so many people have died and there is this desire to create mm -hmm. new life. And also there's the space for you to bear a child without having to have the burden of raising that child right. your, yourself or with only one other people because of a commune that exists in a way. So you can bear the child. You could like surrogacy is like extremely like common and available, but also you're not just being a surrogate for like a couple you're being a surrogate for, you know, like people are they're they're living in these like extremely communal, like eight adults to five kids arrangements, thing, things like that. Like, that that care that childcare is taken care of in a radically different way that it frees you to be uh to take the pleasure of all forms of sort of um yeah gestation and child rearing right it insofar as you as it you know according to your means basically yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no, you know, like the sort of the, uh, what the hit, the hidden abode of reproduction is completely right. gone. Right? right. Because like, uh, you know, individual life and social life are the same, are the same thing. You know, right. there's not a distinction between the, between those things, which doesn't mean that people don't have privacy and it doesn't mean that they don't have, you know, feelings or dramas or whatever it may um, whatever it may be. What's, mm -hmm. what's one of the bits that you like particularly? Um, well, the Mart, the, the killing all the rich people in space is, was really good. I thought, okay, one thing that I really like, I like the chapter on the church fathers of Staten Island, mm -hmm. which That's is an intense one. Wow. It's very intense and brutal. One of the reasons I really like it is how, Emmy O'Brien, the interviewer, is on the wrong foot from the very beginning. And it turns on that notion of interview and interviewee. Yeah. Interviewer and interviewee. It turns it on its head because O'Brien doesn't really know who she's talking to necessarily. She has an inkling. But right away at the very beginning, like on the third page of the interview, Adams says, you don't know what to ask. And because O'Brien comes in with this preconception, I mean, it's an amazing, actually, like example of, of a historian discovering history at the moment, you know, of, of doing research and finding out that their conception of, of a historical event uh, is coming from a certain perspective that, uh, that is not, maybe not shared entirely by one of the actual participants in that history. And I don't want to, I'm kind of being cagey about it because yeah, I don't want to yeah. spoil it for the reader, Yeah. but, uh, basically that interview takes place with O'Brien starting to ask a series of questions to their interviewee that uh, reveals that O'Brien doesn't really know the right questions to ask and and the right attitude to take to this interviewee. I mean, it, you know, O'Brien's asking very in, uh, innocent, asking questions very innocently, 
But the basis of her innocence comes from a position of prejudice, which she's not aware of until she uh, is confronted by the interviewee who, by Adams, who then pushes back and, you know, has a specific attitude. So I thought there, there are different moments like that in the book where the interviewee Mm -hmm. will, you know, put pressure, you know, put pressure against the interviewer um, and uh, be offended or like call them out on stuff, which I thought was really brilliantly written uh, and very, very clever. Yeah. Yeah. I really like, I really like that too. And I also like in the, um, in the interview with Connor Stevens. um, uh, Oh, that I was going to say that too. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think that one, that one is great because it, and it's partly great because he is like, you know, uh, grieving and traumatized um, from multiple things. And so right. his his narration of things is actually quite unclear. And O'Brien is trying to like figure out how stuff goes together without right. clearly without wanting to push him. But he's like made a strong association in his mind between her and his sister who he lost. Right. Um, and he has this moment of like breaking down. And it, like that one, I, I mean, I really liked the way in which like in that one and then also um, with um, Anju, the, uh, the uh, guy who's doing environmental restoration, he talks about his own mental illness. And in both of those cases, I felt like you know, they just allow for, um, without like, you know, uh, I don't know, without like doing, without sort of like, um, they allow for the possibility of people with other modes of cognition, right? Right. Um, with um, other kinds of ways of perceiving and interacting with the world for people who are mentally ill to uh, talk about what they want to talk about, you know, and that we sort of are put in the position of like, I mean, with Chu, this is like not, I mean, he's very coherent, you know, he just tells us about, um, you know, he, he tells his story in a way that like, um, Sort of bu- sort of belies um, his own experience of mental illness, um, but in the case of S- Stevens, you know, like uh, at that point, reading it, I think like despite the fact that he's telling things out of order, like we're kind of in the mode. I mean, my experience as a reader is of being in the mode of thinking, like, yeah, how does anybody know what order anything happened? Totally, you know, what? how do you tell a story without like? recurring to a past that you couldn't possibly explain like and there so there you get the kind of i think really richly the question of what it means to live through something you know same with the stat same with the staten island one too you know like what does it mean to have lived through something like this and then to constitute yourself as a person afterwards there's no one answer to that And, and explain it to somebody and explain it to somebody else i mean let alone yourself but explain it to somebody else I mean, you'll never explain it to yourself. You probably have a better chance of explaining it to, of, of giving somebody else a concrete objective idea of it because it's always going to be an object to that person than it is your subjective experience. But O'Brien, I like how I, I like how O'Brien is doubly confused because there's this one moment in that interview with Connor Stevens um, 
where O'Brien says, so the U.S. Army was fighting fascists? Is that right? I feel myself getting confused because O'Brien has this like association with, well, yeah, the U.S. Army is fascist. So why would they be fighting fascists? Right. right? So there's this like this double confusion for for her about like the nature of fascism and who are these uh, warring factions within the United States at this time. So so that history is still is also still being written and, and built and recovered in this in this moment in this like future moment after the fact because it is confusing if you consider the army of fat the U- the united states of fascist you know a quasi fascist or quasi fascist force but it's even more fascist then in the future than it is today um uh but then they're like there are these fascist militias and then there's also throughout the book not in the connor stevens chapter but like the the nypd and like different right. police forces mm-hmm. so that the army and the police um and then like these like private militias they're all kind of warring and it's it's extremely messy and confusing and in <clears throat> we never get you know a concrete full view of what all that looks like uh which you know gestures again toward the impossibility of like having a clear objective concrete final version of the past right. it's a constant building it's a constant rebuilding of of history and it, in order to build the future or whatever right we got we get that in the one i forgot that the palestine one isn't the only is the only one that takes place largely outside of the u.s with um quinn Liu, who is um born in right uh born in um los angeles to chinese immigrant parents oh yeah they're they're sent to um an internment camp um and like the picture of california is uh devastating quite devastating um and um her parents long to get back to china and when they get back to china they basically end up in indentured servitude um and then and then you know, there's a split between the between the child and the parents. The child, you know, becomes a revolutionary and is like, you know, I'm not going to make these fucking police robots anymore at this factory. Like, we're going to take over the factories. Right. And the parents are like, we just want to get back to the town that we're from. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of like, um, you know, we both get these kind of notes in that chapter that are like sort of familiar notes from the kind of like classic immigrant story of like you know the Mm -hmm. gap between the parent you know between the between the child and their immigrant parents um but also like this kind of like you know pretty amazing like big picture including like people coming then coming from the struggles in china back to new york to start the the to aid in starting the commune in flushing queens um i mean you know like that yeah it's funny like as i'm thinking about it now i'm like man each one of these is like they're so good they're so good and they have these they have the quality of like a little mini novel you know like you know where you can uh, it's very easy to imagine like each one being expanded out, um, you know, to like a couple hundred pages. It, 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 that's what makes it so readable too, is because they are schematic in a way. I mean, you talk, yeah. you, you mentioned very early on, like all the details and in a way, yeah, it's full of details, but there's also so much that's just not there because yeah. you, you get these like broad outlines of these incredible stories of these individuals 
um, that all kind of add up to this, to this thing. And they all, all these people just start out as ordinary people who are like forced into like action, right. Uh, by circumstances around them, like Quinn Liu, um, you know, one of the things that I, that re- that I thought of really, that was really uh, resonant with me here was the way her parents are always looking for a new place to go. It's going to be better there. Yeah. And she and her sister, I believe, make the, you know, make the decision or re- come to the realization uh, it's not going to be better there. We have to make the future here. We have to make society where we are. Um because it's going to be the same there, you know? Um, and so you have to build rather than like, look for a new place. You have to stay and build and fight rather than like, look for another place to, to suffer. Yeah. Uh, because that's, you know, um, uh, and that, that was, that was great on that one. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, something I wanted to say that I think is Go for it. good to think about here is like, um, I mean, so this is the events, um, the events that we're hearing about um, at the beginning, like 2052 are only 30 years from where we are now, you yeah. know, um, and that's like, um, that is, I think, uh, I think that that. I mean, we've talked a bit about like, what does it look like to do like the very near future, you know? Um, uh, And that I think is one of the, like, it is one of the things that's like really productively estranging here is that um, not just like, oh, you know, they have these like uh, neural net implants or, or whatever, um, or like, you know, the al- the algae server farms that have attained sentience. Um, uh, but uh, but rather just like the density of this life world right. feels like really quite um, incredibly possible, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh, right. Everything. It's not just that like things can change. It's like things can change extraordinarily and they and that can happen like that's not the project of like a million a million years <laughs> i watched i watched rear window last night with a small group of college kids from 1954 that's less than 70 years ago it's a fucking different planet yeah <laughs> today than it was then i mean yeah. it's really but chaotically different you know it wasn't yeah nobody decided it wasn't a democratic process to make the hell that we live in out of the hell that they were living in, in 1954. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, and if anything, I mean, I think certain things just that have happened in the past year make some of the events of everything for everyone accelerate the timeline, like the yeah. collapse of the dollar <laughs> is like, if it doesn't happen by 2025, I don't know what's, I don't know what is going to happen because, uh, dollar hegemony is on the way out yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. really quickly. So when that happens, like all cards are off the table, you know, or whatever that, uh, whatever the expression is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that like the kind of imminence of the changes and of, and of the utopian possibilities that are unfolded in this book are once you read this book, dear listener, 
<laughs> they'll only become more evident to you. And this is why I encourage you to buy multiple copies and just hand them out to strangers or your family. Or, yeah, agreed. You know. Agreed. And also one thing I would say is that uh, I think in the introduction, uh, they they give little bios of themselves. Um, and since, you know, the two interviewers in this book have the same names as the two authors and seem to have basically the same backgrounds as the two authors. Oh, also like every single time I I've now read the introduction three times and I have literally cried every time it, refer <laughs> it references returning in 2050 to, um, I can't remember what it says, but the University of Chicago finally destroy the campus at the university. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, you know. Iman Abdel Hadi is a professor at the institution that I believe you work at. Yeah, still. exactly. I hope it's not going to take us until 2050 to expropriate uh, that particular um, bastion of expropriators. But anyway, um, uh, you know, they so they like just like, you know, they they show up as interviewers, you know, like it's interesting to think of, you get to think about the role of the interviewer here, but you get you know, you get the, in the introduction, like two people also writing little futures for themselves. Um, right. yeah, and there's something about that, that I think is like really, really special. Like, it's, it's lovely. And as lovely as a sort of like exercise. And I don't know, I was thinking like, yeah, that's something that I think people should do not in a, like, these are the things I want to have or possess. Um, but like, what's the version of my life when everything is for everyone. Who, who yeah. am I, who am I then? You know, what am I doing? Like, what yeah. do I think I would do? Like, and to acknowledge you might be, you might be old and you might like have been highly involved along the way. And, and by the time, like people are like, you know, settling down and, and starting to have arguments about like what, what kind of like soil microbes they should bioengineer, you might be quite old, but like, you know, I don't know. I think it's a good thing to, to just like, to think yourself into the future in that way, yeah. not for you, but for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a future for everyone, like, what are you going to, what are you going to do? What's what are you your gonna place get in to that, do, you know? Like, what's your place in that society? And then the other, uh, one moment I just love is, and this will be the last thing because I have to pee and we we record until we pee. <laughs> That's the P that's, always ends the recording. That's, um, that's the marooned on Mars guarantee. <laughs> um, the interview with the very young person, the 17 year old who's about to go on her sojourn. Oh yeah. It ends with her saying to Emmy O'Brien, you are very old, <laughs> which is just so funny and cool and hilarious. And yeah. you know that Emmy and Iman must be very cool people to put that in a book. I, yeah, I gotta, I gotta say, I mean, this is tip I, of the hat. This is an, this is a really, really wonderful book. And yeah. I, I feel like it's, uh, um, I feel like a lot of the people who I've seen like talking about it are not science fiction people. Mm. Um, and that's cool because I think, you know, this, sh everybody should read it, but also I think science fiction people would really enjoy this. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like serious about it. It, it knows what genre it is working in. Um, and, uh, and it does that, like, I don't know. Do you think that the reference in Quinn Lou's to the Napa Valley and, and migration in California, is that a reference to Parable of the Sour? Sour. Sour. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I do think this is definitely a sort of post Parable of the Sour book. Yeah. 
which mm-hmm. perhaps I'm saying because uh, th- I am teaching parable right now for like the umpteenth time, and yeah. we're talking about this today. But yeah, I do. But it feels I do. That way. I do think that the um, particularly like trying to think about questions about like what does you know what does it look like to like live with um impermanence and change and you know the ways in which we as as living creatures will always be vulnerable and constantly be changing um what does it look like to like quote unquote build yeah community then yeah. you know like uh if you don't have fantasies of um you know the the walls that will hold everything in which i think yeah. is like that's part of what i think that that octavia butler book asks you to think yeah. about yeah okay good talk all right this is great everybody listeners you're allowed to pee now uh we'll be back soon with uh, a very special episode about the film stealth <laughs> which is the only logical thing to follow up the, uh, a conversation about this book yep. with correct yeah. yes Yes, we're just keeping it keeping it classy is mostly what I would want to say there. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.